The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. I don't know if you have kept up what's happening in Syria. Most of us keep up as it affects us and our nation. But here's the reality. In Syria, there are 11 million refugees. 11 million people have fled the country because of war. Out of those 11 million, 10 million have remained in the Middle East. So 10 million people displaced from their country, no longer able to live. They're fleeing for their lives. They've moved into the surrounding countries. And uh, here's the opportunity that we have. We have missionaries on the ground in Lebanon. Uh, Bill and Christy Bowers, part of the body, just as James and Jen and Amy are in Nice, uh, France. Uh, they are in Lebanon. Uh, they're not far from the Israeli border. And what's happened is that uh, um, Bill also oversees the organization he's with. He oversees the countries of uh, Iraq, Iran, and Jordan. Many of these refugees have gone to these countries. And so uh, there's a great opportunity for the gospel right now. Many of them are seeking out answers. Many of them are visiting Christian churches in these lands. Many of them are believers or are nominal Christians who are seeking truth. And so Bill overseeing these churches has two opportunities. One is to provide some physical relief for them. Some of these folks come uh, totally barren of anything. They just have fled the country. Secondly, there's a great opportunity to train pastors there. Just as uh, James does that, uh, Bill Bowers does that as well in these countries with the organization that he's with. And so we have opportunities to train pastors there. TBC's name will never be mentioned. Uh, This is all about God receiving the glory. So What's going to happen is our missions finance team has approved $40,000 to send to the Bowers that will be distributed for pastor's conferences, uh, pastor training, as well as uh, uh, providing some relief, some physical assistance for them, food and water. And so we're going to do that. Our challenge to the body, our challenge to the body this month, we'd like to give an additional $10,000. We'd like to send $50,000 to them. So if you'd like to participate in that, you make your checks out to TBC, you memo at Syria, and we'll make sure that money gets there. So our prayer is that we'll be able to send $50,000 to them. It's a drop in the bucket when you've got 10 million refugees. But we recognize we can impact one person at a time, one church at a time. We can impact pastors who can impact others. And so that's really our desire. We're going to send that to them. Uh, these pastors and these churches will be the champions among those people so that uh, folks can uh, hopefully uh, seek after Jesus because of what's been provided for them. So. Uh, that's what we're going to do in the next months. Out of those uh, 10 million people uh, in fleeing, living in the Middle East right now, outside of Syria, uh, it's estimated that up to 60% of them are children under 18. So uh, that's a lot of kids roaming streets, uh, being with families without places to live and places to be. So we'll pray for those nations in a few minutes. Love the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. We saw that in our justice study referring to Israel. Well, we open our Bibles to a brand new place. If you have your Bibles, your apps, open them, turn them on to Daniel chapter 1. I'm excited for this adventure. We're going to be in Daniel for the next uh, few months, all the way through uh, the first part of May together, uh, looking at the story of Daniel. So we've entitled this entire series, Cultures on Collision. I'll show you why that's the case, hopefully in this morning's message. This morning I've entitled the message, Thriving in Babylon, Thriving in Babylon. Daniel was uprooted from his native land of Judah, planted in the wicked soil of Babylon as a young man. He he was probably somewhere between 14 and 18. We're not sure. History does not tell us that. The scriptures do not. But as you read Daniel's story, the one thing you'll see about Daniel, he's not just surviving in a pagan foreign land. He's thriving in that land. 
And so the question before us over the weeks ahead is, how do we thrive in the midst of Babylon? How do we thrive in the midst of the world we live in, which parallels that land in many, many ways? When we look at the book of Daniel, though, we're going to see that Daniel is more than a biography of a godly prophet, and the first six chapters are really biographical. It's more than a study of prophecy, and the next chapters, chapters 7 through 12, are prophetic in nature. It's more than an adventure story that we used to teach our kids in Sunday school, where many of us grew up and learned lessons about the fiery furnace and uh, Daniel in the lion's den. It's much more than that, because when we study the book of Daniel, in fact, the heading may say the book of Daniel in your Bible, but primarily the book of Daniel is a story about Daniel's God. It's not a story about Daniel, but it's a story about Daniel's God. And I hope over the next weeks, over the next few months, as we look at the book of Daniel, that our God will be lifted up. I pray that as those of us who preach and teach over the weeks ahead, that that we will bow down before our God, that this is a book about our big God. It's, It's not primarily a book about Daniel, but primarily a book about Daniel's God. And I'll show you some things this morning from that. If I were to look at the entire book of Daniel, chapters 1 through 12, and some would say, give me a theme for the whole book, I would say the theme is this, that in spite of present conditions, God is in control. In spite of present conditions, God's in control. Daniel, you may be in the fiery furnace, but God's in control. Daniel, you may be in the lion's den, but God is in control. Daniel, you're writing about the the rise and demise of nations, but ultimately God is in control. I, I believe Daniel knew and understood that, and I'll show you how from the text in a minute. But ultimately, I think that's what we need to see and understand as well. If there is a message that we need to hear today in our culture, in our world, it's that in spite of present conditions, God is in control. In spite of a topsy-turvy economy, God is in control. I I got whiplash in the last three weeks just looking at the stock market going up and down, up and down. In spite of the economic conditions of our world, God is in control. In spite of terrorism, in spite of all the, the murders we see taking place around our world, including the murder of Christians, our God is in control. In spite of the political jostling we see in our own nation, in spite of the moral decay of the world that we live in, our God is in control. And I hope over the next months, what we'll see ultimately, that this is indeed a story about Daniel, but primarily it's a story about Daniel's God. So would you pray for us in the next weeks? That indeed, this will be a time where, I I, I want this to be a time when we see God in a great way, where where we see him high and lifted up, and we see that a gospel-centered life, a life lived through Christ, is not a life of moralism, but a life of true obedience because of the transformation that's taken place in our lives of the Savior. So let's look at the story of Daniel. Let's look at chapter one. Let's look at the setting. The setting takes place, really is laid out for us in the first two verses of the book. Chapter one, verse one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. He brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Let's stop there for a moment. Chapter one, verse one. Let's do a a quick review of Israel's history. In the nation of Israel, there was a time of judges and then Israel selected their first king. They wanted a guy who was tall, dark, and handsome, who could lead the nation, ride on the horse in front of the parade. And so they selected whom for their first king? Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. He disobeyed God. God removed him from the throne. And God said, I've got a man who has a heart like mine. And so God selected whom as the second king of Israel? David. So you've got Saul, then David. David dies and his son becomes the third king of Israel. His name is 
Solomon. So you have Saul, David, Solomon, first three kings in Israel's history. What happens after Solomon? What happens to the nation? Most of us could not begin to name the next king because it wasn't a single king, it was two kings. After the death of Solomon, the nation divided. The nation divided, his, brother, his sons began to squabble over who would be king, and so the nations divided uh, to the north were the tribes, and they called themselves Israel, to the south were some tribes, and they called themselves Judah. Inside of Israel were places like Dan, the Sea of Galilee, most of the Jordan River, uh, to Judah in the south, you have Jerusalem and Bethlehem and the Dead Sea, and so you have a northern tribe and a southern tribe. Saul, David, Solomon reigned, the nation splits in two. A civil, civil war, if you will, in a sense. And so the nation splits in two. To the north is Israel, the northern kingdom. To the south is Judah. Well, God sends prophets over and over, and he says, if you follow the ways of the world, if you continue to turn from me, if you continue to worship the idols that you bring into the land, then I am going to send people to invade you, conquer you, and capture you. And so that happened. To the north, we see the uh, Assyrians come in and they defeat the, Israel, the, the, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of, of Israel. And so the north are taken captive. If you want a year on that, the year is 722 BC. If you want to take notes, you can jot that down. So the northern kingdom is captured. Well, the southern kingdom, Judah, exists for 120 more years. So I'm sure you're out there with bated breath wondering, why is that the case? I mean, why would the southern kingdom be allowed to exist for 120 more years than the northern kingdom? It's because when you study the kings of the north, there is not a godly king in the whole bunch. Not one. You study 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, actually Kings and Chronicles. When you study those books, there's not a single king of the north who follows the ways of God. But in the southern kingdom, you have some godly kings. And so God extends the time frame. He gives them more time to follow after him because there are some godly kings and he doesn't discipline them for their disobedience. But he sends people like Ezekiel and Jeremiah to warn them, if you do not follow my ways, you're going to go the way of the northern kingdom. You're going to be invaded. You're going to be captured and you're going to be held captive and you're going to be exiled. When we pick up the book of Daniel, chapter one, verse one, that's where we are. The southern kingdom, Judah, is being conquered by the Babylonians. The, the year is 586. I said 605 last year. It's a last hour. It's 586. And what happens is, just as the Assyrians invaded the north and captured them and took them into exile, when we pick up Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, the year is 586 BC, and what we find is the Babylonians are coming into Judah to capture it. They are going to conquer it, they're going to capture it, and they're going to take some folks into exile. That's the historical background. That's verse 1. Verse 2 is a theological background. Verse 1 gives us the who, what, and where of what's taking place on earth, and it gives us a bit of a history lesson. We read about Jehoiakim, it gives us a time, it gives us a year. We read about Nebuchadnezzar, it gives us a kingdom. We we put all that together and we get everything I've just told you. Then we go to chapter 2, and I believe perhaps the most significant statement in the entire book of Daniel, the first words found in verse 2 of chapter 1. And the Lord gave. If you write in your Bibles, if you write on your apps, whatever you've got, you need to circle that, star it, underline it. Daniel's looking back. As Daniel's writing the book of Daniel, he's looking back over everything that's transpired in Israel. And he said, by the way, I want you to clearly understand God's in control of those who think they're in control. I want you to understand something about the sovereignty of God. 
I want you to understand, Daniel is writing years later, he says, I, I, want, I want you to see that, that what I'm going to write about in this book, and specifically in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar sent the Babylonian king conquering the southern kingdom, I want you to know the Lord gave. And so the question is, who's in control of those who seem to be in control? I mean, when things are falling apart, when nations are being captured, when the Israelites, God's people, the Jewish people are taken captive, who's really in control? I mean, if you look at this, you think, how can that happen? These are God's people. That's the apple of God's eye. And Daniel very clearly from the beginning of the book said, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought these vessels to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And so what happens is Nebuchadnezzar goes in, he conquers Jerusalem. As he conquers Jerusalem, a couple of things happen. First of all, Daniel says, what I want you to clearly understand is that God is the one who allowed this to happen. God gave Jehoiakim and the vessels of the temple or a temple. So Nebuchadnezzar goes into the temple in Jerusalem. And we're not sure what he takes out of it. We're not sure what parts of the temple, if it's part of the altar, part of the covenant, Ark of the Covenant, if it's the uh, candelabra, we're not sure what he takes out. But he takes them out of the temple in Jerusalem here. And he has them transported back to Shinar. Shinar is an interesting word. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Shinar equals Babylon. And he takes them back to Babylon. And he puts them in the temple of his God. The chief Babylonian God was a God named Bel, B-E-L. And so he puts them in his temple. Why would he do that? Why would he take these things that represent Yahweh, capture them in Jerusalem, take them back to Babylon? Basically what he's saying is, my God is bigger, my God is stronger, my God's defeated your God, we have your God and our temple, our God wins. You see, when, and at that time, what they would do when they would conquer nations is they would do those things. They would go into the place of worship of the people they conquered, take the things that represented their gods, take them back to their temples, and basically what they're saying, our God is bigger, our God is stronger, our God beat your God. na 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 boo boo You know, we sing a praise song, and we're singing it for about two years now, and it says, our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God, our God. That's basically what Nebuchadnezzar saying. My God, Bel, is bigger, stronger, mightier, more powerful than your God. The Lord gave Jehoiakim and these vessels into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah Ezekiel had warned, hey, if you continue to follow the ways of the pagan gods, this is going to happen. And they ignored those warnings. They ignored those warnings. They followed after these false gods. And now they're being disciplined by the true God because of that. And so verse 1 gives us a historical background. Verse 2 gives us a theological background. The Lord gave this. The Lord allowed this to happen. The nation was being disciplined for their rebellion against the true God. If you look at that verse, he says, he brought them to the land of Shinar. Now, if I were to pass out index cards, first of all, the land of Shinar, Shinar is another word for Babylon, for Babylon. And in fact, I've got a hard time saying that word. We're going to clear something up right now. It sounds like I'm saying Babylon, B-A-B-B-L-I-N-G. If I say that, I don't mean to say that, okay? Babylon does not come out of this New Orleans mouth real easy. So 
Babylon. If I say Babylon, I mean Babylon, okay? So uh, it just doesn't come out that easily. So where is the land of Shinar? Well, that word occurs six times in the Old Testament scriptures. It's equivalent to Babylon. Babylon uh, doesn't come out. So where else do we read about that? Well, here's where it really gets interesting, my friends. Here's where it really gets interesting. We journey back to Genesis. The flood of Noah's time has taken place. So the people of the earth gathered together in the same place. If you look up here, it says in Genesis 11, 1 and 2, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in where? Wow. That's right too, wherever that was. In the land of Shinar. Do you know that was there? They were in Babylon. That's where they were. I mean, the Tower of Babel makes sense. Babel, Babylon, that's where they were. And so here's what happens. They are there, they're building this tower, and it says, they said, come let us build ourselves a, a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, number one, and secondly, we won't be scattered from the earth. Now, God has told them to be scattered. So basically what they're saying is we want to make a name for ourselves that they're filled with self-absorption, self-focus, self-desire. And secondly, we don't want to do what God wants us to do and be scattered. So that rebellious Babylon became the personification of that which is evil, that which focuses upon self, uh, that which focuses upon rebelling against God. In fact, in the book of Revelation, when the angels were thinking of a personification of that which is evil, thinking of how to describe evil taking place. In Revelation chapter 18, it says they cried out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit. So when they are talking about Antichrist and everything that's gonna happen, these angels are crying out from heaven and saying, it's the worst of the worst, it's Babylon. Can't get any worse than Babylon. It's worse than San Francisco, New York City, uh, Beijing, China. You name the city, this is worse. This is Babylon. And so in the Old Testament, it became the personification of a place that is evil, a place that is absorbed with self. So let's go on. God wants to form a nation of his own. We have entering the stage a guy named Abraham. His name is Abram before it's converted or changed to Abraham. And it says this. Well, we know the Lord does what he wants. In Genesis 11 8, he scatters them. So God does what God's going to do because God's in control of those who think they're in control. So here's Abraham. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, uh, and his daughter-in-law Sarah, the wife of his son Abram, and together they sent them out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. So Abraham is called from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the promised land. Canaan is a promised land. Well, where is Ur of the Chaldeans? I mean, when's the last time you've been to Ur? When's the last time you talked to a Chaldean? Most of us, if I were to pass out index cards right now and tell me what you know about Ur of the Chaldeans, I'd get blank cards back. Well, here's where Ur the Chaldeans were. If you look on this map, if you go to the far right, you'll see Babylonia. If you go just south of the word Babylonia, uh, you go a little south and just a little, a little uh, west of that, or east of that rather, you'll find what? What's it say there? Ur. When God took Abraham out of the land and took him to the promised land, he was taking him out of the bondage of Babylonia. 
You take him out of Babylonia. When he called him, he said, you need to leave Ur the Chaldeans and you need to go forth and form a new nation. You need to leave your country. He's saying you need to leave Babylon. You need to leave this particular place. This place of self-absorption, self-focus, the personification of evil, a place of rebellion against God. So, we go to Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and conquers the southern kingdom. And he takes them to where? Babylon. The place that they had been freed from, they're taken back to. The place that they had left to go to the promised land, he says, you're headed back. And so when Nebuchadnezzar, it's no small thing when Nebuchadnezzar, who's a Babylonian, takes people back, takes the Israelites back. He takes them back to the place from which they had been freed. I'd never listened to Beth Moore until this week. And, uh, you know, I, I heard snippets of her teach. She's got a teaching on Daniel. And she does a phenomenal job teaching. She's a good preacher. I mean, I, I'd never listened to her. She can preach. And uh, she did a phenomenal job of looking this up. So I, I'm looking, I wonder if this is accurate. I mean, I'm looking, so I check her out with a guy named Leon Wood, who's written the best commentary on Daniel. And then I check her out with uh, Tremper Longman, who is a professor at Covenant Seminary, I think Covenant or uh, Reform, and check it out. And she's right. And she says, think about it. Taken out of Babylon and brought back into it. So let me make a little transition for you. See, the Babylon of our day, the culture we live in, and then we hear the gospel and we're redeemed, God's grace floods us, imputes us with his righteousness, we become different people, and all of a sudden, you know what Satan wants to do? Take us back to Babylon. He wants to take you back to that place you've been freed from. So, Pastor Gary, what are you talking about? He wants to take you back to Babylon. You've been freed from an addiction. Something comes in your life and gets a little difficult and you're tempted to go back to Babylon. Or, or maybe you're living life and you got out of a really bad relationship and things are not going well and you go back to Babylon. Or, or maybe you're, you're wrestling with things in life and you've been taught true doctrine now and you understand true doctrine. You know that salvation is not by works, but Satan comes in and says, ah, you think you deserve this? You think it's free? And you go back to Babylon and you think you could work for something. Or maybe you, you know now, you understand now that you have eternal security and you don't have to worry about losing your salvation, but Satan comes in and says, ah. And you end up in bondage back in Babylon. Or maybe you understand your identity in Christ, that you're a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away, new things have come. You've been transformed by the gospel. Your mind is renewed every day by the gospel, by the word of God. But you forget your identity and who you are, and you begin to live like the world again. That's gone back to Babylon. Now, for the Israelites, it was a physical place. For us, it can be a spiritual place. And so chapter 1, verse 1, historical perspective. Chapter 1, verse 2, theological perspective. We see the who, what, and where of history. We see the who, what, and where of God being 
in control. And when we don't follow him, what happens? So then what Nebuchadnezzar does, he has a game plan. He's got a well-formulated plan. He wanted to take highly influential young men, train them in the Babylonian ways, strip them of their identity and their integrity, and then have them influence their people. I mean, that's wise, isn't it? You take the best, you take the brightest, you take sons, and then you let them rule over their people or you let them rule within your kingdom. So that's what he did. Picking up in verse three, it says he ordered Espenaz, the chief of his official, to bring some of the sons of Israel, including some of the sons of royal family of nobles. So some of these are from royalty, some are not. But look at the description of who these young men were. They had no defect. They were good looking. They showed intelligence in every branch of wisdom. They were endowed with understanding. They were discerning and knowledge. They had the ability to serve in the king's court. So they were good looking. They were bright. And they had uh, the ability to understand and discern things. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you think you fit in that category? I mean, these are pretty selective. I mean, basically he went to the Harvard and the MIT of the day and he said, I need your best students. I need your best looking guys and I need to take them with me. And what he's going to do is strip them of the identity. He wants them to become true Babylonians. And so he ordered them to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. He says, I'm going to immerse you into everything about our culture. You're going to learn our language just as James and Jen and their team have learned French and they're immersed in the French culture. He says, I want you to become true Babylonians. And so that's the selection process. And these students, I mean, they're giving all kinds of things to do. Look at verse five. This one really got my attention and you'll see why in a second. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank. And I say, amen. I mean, we're not talking McDonald's and Burger King and Taco Bell here. We're talking the king's table. We're not talking about Thunderbird and Boone's Farm here. We're talking about the best of the best. I Googled this up, I did uh, fine dining, and that's what appeared, that's what was on the table in the king's palace. Probably wasn't lamb chops looking like that, but I guarantee it was good. I look at that and say, man, that's pretty good. You got a scholarship, you're gonna, for three years you're gonna be taught, uh, you're gonna be provided with a job in the king's service, and you're gonna get to eat like a king, literally. Literally, you get this stuff. And so what happens? He's trying to strip them of their identity. He said, you're going to eat with me. You're going to study with me. You're going to study with my people. Eat with my people. You'll be like my people. A couple more things need to happen, though. First thing is, we need to rename you. You see, you have Hebrew names, and those Hebrew names, first of all, uh, all four of the Hebrew names you're going to look at have the name God, the name for Yahweh in it, either El or Ah. So we need to rename you because we don't want you to think that you're still a follower of that God. We want you to be a follower of our God. And not only that, if you have Hebrew names, you remember where you came from. And we don't want you to remember where you came from because you're a Babylonian now. So the Hebrew name Daniel means God is judge. So they renamed him Belshazzar, which means may Bel, who's the chief of the Babylonian gods, uh, protect his life. So young man, I'm going to take you away from your family, take you away from your friends, take you away from everything you know, take you away from everything that's familiar to you. And not only are you going to study our language and learn our ways and our culture and our science, and not only are you going to have to eat at my table, but now you're going to be called something else. Your name is going to be the name of a pagan god. Changing who you are. Not only that, he took Hananiah, which means Yahweh is gracious. And he renamed him Shadrach, command, one who follows basically the command of a coup, who is a moon god. Take a guy named Mishael, and Hebrew means who is what God is? Who is what God is? 
Let's rename him Meshach, who is what Aku is. You're going to follow a pagan god? Let's take Azariah, whose name means the one Yahweh helps. And let's rename him Abednego, servant of Nebo, the god of wisdom. We're going to take everything you know, everything familiar to you away from you, move you to a different land, a different place. We're going to strip you of everything you are, and we're going to change your identity. Because we need you to influence your people, and we need to help you in expanding kingdom. Do something, and we don't want you to remember your God. You're going to become somebody else. Somebody else. Not only that, we're going to take away your integrity. We're going to take away your identity, we're going to take away your integrity. You've been a follower of your true God. Uh, we're going to teach you not to follow him. And one of the ways is in the dietary laws. Hey, you look at the test that's given in verse 8. It says, but Daniel, but Daniel. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. How would partaking of the king's choice food defile him? Well, perhaps in three ways. First of all, it probably wasn't cooked in the, uh, in the way that the dietary law, the mosaic law, uh, spelled out. Secondly, more than likely, this food had been offered to idols, which was prohibited to partake of. And thirdly, uh, in the ancient Near East, if you ate with somebody, you were considered to be a friend or in covenant with them. And so Daniel did not want to participate for one, two, or three reasons. We're not sure, but for sure he knew if he ate of that food, it would defile him in some way. So Daniel draws a line in the sand. I cannot compromise. You may take and strip away my identity, but I will not compromise my integrity. My friends, if we know Christ as Savior and live a gospel-centered life, we should be like Daniel. You may try and strip away who I am, my identity, but you cannot take away my integrity. I may have to live in Babylon. I may have to be surrounded by a world. Jesus puts it this way, we are in the world, but not of the world. But I will not compromise in following my God and his ways. And that takes place because of our transformed life in the Savior. Well, it goes on and it says, uh, Daniel sought permission from the king's commander and he said, uh, what we'd like to do is go on a different diet. You're familiar with the story. And the commander says, uh, look at verse 10. I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has appointed your food and drink for uh, if they see you haggard, uh, then my head will come off. They will forfeit my, the king will forfeit my head. The guy says, I'm putting my head in the guillotine. If I put you, let you go on this diet, and things get worse. And so Daniel comes up with a plan. Look at verse 12. Please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. The word vegetable there is a pretty broad word in the Hebrew language. Probably refers not just to vegetables we know, them, but fruit and grain as well. So perhaps fruit, vegetables, and breads. Daniel says, I've got a deal for you. Just test us for 10 days. There's one thing I want you to note here. Daniel is living in Babylon, a strange world, a foreign world, a pagan world. And I want you to look at the way he treats the commander with respect and with humility. Uh, some of our leaders went to a conference called the Right Now Conference in Dallas back in October. And one of the speakers there was a guy named Larry Osborne from the West Coast. And he taught on Daniel. And he actually wrote a book called Thriving in Babylon. And uh, he talked about how in the midst of opposition, in the midst of living among those who were ungodly placed over him, Daniel lived a life that was a life of kindness and humility in the midst of that. That's a good lesson for us. I hear a whole lot of whining, a whole lot of complaining about those in authority over us. 
But how do we live our life? We live our lives as though they're in control and that God's not in control. The question is, who's in control of those who seem to be in control? So Daniel says, test us. Test us with vegetables to eat and water to drink. I wrote in this morning of my Bible, certainly Daniel's not a Texan. I mean, who's going to give up meat for 10 days? Like, what kind of test is that? So... Uh, then let our appearance be observed and, and the appearance of our youth who are eating the king's choice food compare us. And so he listened to them in this matter and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better. He, I'm reading New American Standard. Their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youth. Now I'm gonna tell you guys, that's a miracle. <laughs> that's a miracle. I add as a miracle. If you're eating the king's food that I popped up here, and, and you, the guys eating vegetables and water gain more weight, that's a miracle. Take it from me. I know about this stuff. Look at me. This is not vegetables and water. You don't eat vegetables and water and gain weight. I mean, it's just the opposite. Of it. But the reality of it is, look at verse 17. And so as for, you, as for the four use, God gave them. God blessed them. God showed them favor. God is the one who is the one who accomplished all these things. They parade him in front and they look better than anybody else. By the way, this is not, you know, be careful. You can go by a book called The Daniel Plan. And uh, they use that to show that this is the way that God wants us to eat. I, I, I don't think that's what this passage is about. It's about our great God. Make no mistake about it. Daniel did not compromise his integrity. In the Babylon we live in, it's easy to compromise our integrity. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewing your mind every day to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Too often we're conformed to this world. We lose our identity, we lose our integrity. I wrote down in my notes, Gary, where are you compromising? Is an area of your life that you're living like a Babylonian? Your tongue, your eyes, your heart, your feet, your mind. Your tongue, the things you say. My compromising? My eyes, the things I look at. My feet, the places I go. My mind, the things I allow to invade it. Reading, computer, TV, movies. Gary, where are you living your life like a Babylonian? Or are you living out the gospel without compromise? Sometimes it can be risky, sometimes it can be costly. For Daniel and his friends, they thrive. Sometimes people live out the gospel and they're confined to prison for a long time. Sometimes people live out the gospel and they die for their faith. In this scenario, Daniel and his friends prosper. In fact, if you look at the outcome in the rest of the chapter, you see that they are blessed. They graduated as valedictorians, Phi Beta Kappa, Summa Cum Laude, you name it, they had it. They had all these things behind their names. When they're presented before Nebuchadnezzar, verse 19, he talked to them. There was not one of them found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. If you look at the end of verse 20, they were 10 times better than any of the other magicians and conjurers who were in that realm. God bless them beyond belief. Three things now close. The Old Testament is a story about creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the theme of the Old Testament. All looks ahead to Jesus. In the book of Daniel, one of the books I'm reading is Christocentric, Christocentric, Christocentric preaching in Daniel. And right now what we see is bondage. 
nation's in bondage. There's not redemption for 70 more years. And here's the reality. Some of you are in bondage. Jesus came, offered his life so you can be freed from that bondage. If you don't know the Savior, I invite you this morning to trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. Some of you, you've experienced the grace and the freedom from bondage and salvation, but you've gone back to Babylon. You've gone back to Babylon, and you're held captive once again. And today the Savior wants you to be set free. You already have salvation, but you're living in bondage. And he wants to set you free today so you're not held captive in that Babylon. Second thing, Daniel was in Babylon, but Babylon was not in Daniel. When you read through this book, Daniel was in Babylon, but Babylon was not in Daniel. His identity was not changed. They stripped him of where he lived. They stripped him of the things he ate. They stripped him of everything familiar. They stripped him of his name. But Daniel faithfully walks with God. And so Daniel was in Babylon, but Babylon was not in Daniel. And that's why we live lives differently from the world. That's why we live lives of forgiveness. That's why we live lives of not taking revenge. That's why we live lives of loving our spouses. That's why we live lives of parenting the way we parent, of giving our money and being generous. Because our lives have been transformed and we're not going to live like Babylonians. And finally, Daniel is more than a biography of a godly prophet or a prophetic book about the future. More than an adventure story to teach our kids in Sunday school. But it's a book that shows us that our God orchestrates all of human history to accomplish his purposes. The book of Daniel is primarily a book about Daniel's God. God's in control of those who seem to be in control. You know, there are times in our world when we have to wonder, God, are you really in control? I mean, God, I, I look at the things that are happening around us. I look at the moral decay. I look at the persecution. I look at the suffering. I look at the events of the world. And things seem out of control. Then there are times in our lives, honestly, when things seem out of control. And I don't know about you, but there are times that I'm thinking, God, if you're really in control, why would you let that happen? I mean, very clearly in, in verse 2, verse 17, it said, God gave, God gave. So God, why would you let that happen? In the year 2000, our family got to go to Africa. Bev and I were teaching at a couple of different conferences and the, the Gilkerson family joined us and uh, they came back and our kids came back with them and Bev and I remained another week on the way out. Daniel, our son, got really sick and he got a bad virus and long story short, that virus attacked his pancreas and uh, Daniel's built like Bev, lean and mean, not built like me, filled with things other than vegetables. And uh, in a matter of a month, Daniel became a type 1 diabetic, just like that. And honestly, it rocked our worlds. In particular, it rocked my world. If you were here back in 2000, maybe you remember that. I mean, it was, it just, it was like, are you kidding me? I mean, God, are you going to let my son have a lifelong disease and a disease that can attack the body in a lot of different ways and and God, you're going to let that happen? I mean, we, we have faithfully served you and honored you with our lives and we pursued you. And 
I mean, and this is what we get? And honestly, I felt like I deserved better. Pretty immature thought, isn't it? And I remember thinking, you know, God, if that's what you're going to, you're going to start touching my kids. I may be done with this. I'm not going to turn my back on you. I'm going to follow you, but why would I want to do all the stuff I'm doing? I mean, if this is what we get out of it. And for two weeks, Bev can tell you I struggled. Some of you can tell you I went to some of you. You came to me. And I just wrestled with God, disappointed, frustrated, thinking, how can this happen? Why would you let that happen? Those are my thoughts. You're the God of the universe in control of everything. And honestly, looking back now, I realize how, you know, God brought me down that pathway so I could learn great lessons. I don't believe God zapped my son with a disease, but I believe through that good things can come. See, at that time, our son was a sophomore, and just starting a sophomore year at Baylor, didn't know what he wanted to do, really. He was a political science major, but for no reason, and didn't know what to do. And uh, really, through that disease, began studying about his diabetes, and uh, very long story short, now he's a pediatric endocrinologist. And so I look at those times, and now when I hear Daniel talk about him diagnosing a young boy, a young girl, six, seven, eight, ten years old, and he shows him his insulin pump. And he talks about living the way he lives, and nothing has been compromised in his life when it comes to living life. I'm thinking, so that's what God was up to. And when I read some of the research papers he's written, and don't understand most of it, honestly, but when I read that stuff, I'm thinking, so that's what God was up to. And then when I look back at my life, and look at my response to that. I'm thinking, when everything was out of control, I forgot to realize you were in control. And then you pulse that into my life through godly saints and through the word of God and through the response of my wife and my kids. And so God deepened me to be a man who can say, God's in control when things seem out of control. And I don't know what it's like in your life right now. There may be a few things that seem like, God, why would you allow that to happen? Or you may be the person who watches the news all the time and complain and whine and say, it looks like everything's out of control. I want to remind you, God's in control of those who seem to be in control and when things seem to be out of control. Proverbs 21.1, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of waters, he channels it wherever he desires. Our God is stronger. Our God is able. Our God is mighty. Thank you for being that God. Thank you for being one who is in control. God, right now my heart is heavy for those who've returned to Babylon. Dear friends who know you, but have chosen to live in bondage. God, I pray today you'd free them. They've run back to that addiction, that bad relationship, that false doctrine, that false teaching, that false identity. They've compromised their integrity, and I pray this morning you would free them and bring them out of bondage. 
you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never personally said, Lord, I desire to be forgiven of my sins, if you've not done that before him, this morning will be the greatest freedom forever, for, the greatest freedom you ever enjoyed, and that's freedom forever in Christ. Father, I pray for the months ahead that you'll be lifted up in your name.